Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Welcome. It's welcome. I think welcome. you mean hey folks, welcome to the Unsung <laughs> Podcast. Uh, I am your host, it's Mark Fraser. <laughs> I mean, this is a week, week later for you, but it's still the same week for us. So who knows what's happened historically in between? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm at a bit second impeachment. Second uh, impeachment. Knocked down in the House, uh, in the Senate. Um, I am going to guess London and Scotland at the heaviest fuck lockdown. I'm going to guess new Chinese strain of virus panics people. Which uh, British traditional high street store will go into administration? Marks and Spencers. Uh, it's Mar- it'll be Marks and Spencers. You think it'll be Marks? I mean, yeah. I saw the queue outside Marks before Christmas. That should get them through a couple of months. But <laughs> I'm worried that it's the co-op. I like the co-op, but I'm worried about them. The co-op are all lots of independent little franchises, though, aren't they? I thought yeah, like the, there's Scott Mid and company, all yeah. these guys. So although well, hopefully maybe. the co-op's funeral services keep the rest of the company afloat. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> the business must be booming. So uh, I am joined. I'm joined this week by <laughs> I'm joined this week by the two guys I'm usually joined with. Uh, oh yeah, we should introduce ourselves, shouldn't we? Um, I've already introduced so, myself. Uh, <laughs> who are you? Can you introduce you? yourself as, as Mark, Mark the Liz Fraser? I am Mark the Liz Fraser. <laughs> I'm David I'm the Dreamweaver. David the Dreamweaver. Oh, that's really good. I, like I can't it. do anything like that. Yeah, you can. I mean, uh, the only things I can do are grossly offensive nicknames from my childhood that <laughs> really do still hurt. Chris Cusack and on, come on. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not go down. I'm, I, I know what some of our listeners are like, and they're fucking. They can be a sinister bunch. I'm not giving them the ammunition of telling them any of the nicknames that I got levelled at me when I was younger. All right, let's just move on. Okay, Chris. Uh, we finished uh, last week talking about uh, the Cocteau Twins. Dave has nominated the album Heaven or Las Vegas. <laughs> Uh, but we were just passing the point of 1986's The Moon and the Melodies uh, recorded with Harold Budd who died basically because of our podcast um, the day after uh, so sorry about that uh, Harold family yeah, apologies um, if you want anyone off, we're going to throw their name in at the end of this podcast and that should take care of them but the next instalment of the Cocteau Twins history came in 88 with Bluebell Knoll And I think this is kind of where, for for me, we get into the territory of like contesting the whole unsung label. Um, anyway, th- this was actually a big step for them because it was distributed by Capitol Records mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of 4AD. So, albeit we've talked about talked about how often the Cocteau Twins made decisions that were quite anti-commercial, such as not appearing on top of the pops, such as the Victoria Land album. Um, at this point, they do sort of, to some extent, get into bed with a major. 
uh, of sorts, um, at least in terms of distro. Uh, because, I mean, I'm sure the demand was there. I'm sure they wanted people to be able to get their stuff. That's fair enough. Um, Bluebell Knoll is an interesting record. It's quite synthy. Uh, certainly has a bold start. We are kind of harpsichord sequencer. The vocals in it, that track in particular, the first one, get really quite abstract. Uh, the production in general in this album is much bigger and much clearer. Um, and I know that the band like this album, mm-hmm. whereas Treasure, which is the one that most commonly vies for f- first place in sort of best of lists we have in our Las Vegas, uh, Treasure the band hated. And as we said, Guthrie refers to it as an abortion. Uh, any thoughts on this one, gents? Well, for me, this is the one that. I hadn't really heard before, you know, diving back in, and it's the one that I'm going to take forward that I'll probably listen to again. And it's the one, yeah, maybe if we had to change tack mid-episode, maybe this is the unsung album out of their discography because it doesn't have any of the big songs on it. Uh, It's not either Heaven or Las Vegas or Treasure in terms of, you know, being ranked historically up there. But I actually... I think it is really, really solid. It is interesting. I, I think the guitars sound great. I like the synth coming in. A couple of really good tracks. Uh, like I really, I do really like Bluebell Knoll, like that first track. Uh, yeah, there's like a couple of annoying um, bits on this record, but nothing as grossly offensive as what I find on Treasure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting record, and can I just ask what it was one of the annoying bits in this? Carolyn's fingers. Cause yes, absolutely. The vocals really jump the shark. Uh, that whole kind of falsetto thing we're talking about. She just there's later in their career. There's a couple of points where that just gets completely out of control. <laughs> yeah, and yes, you can see like the Kate, Kate Bush, Bush right? influence, obviously, yeah. and it doesn't work because she's not Kate Bush. She's Liz Fraser. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like there are a couple of highlights. So um, the itchy global, <laughs> itchy globe, itchy global blow is yeah. I mean, we, I we also haven't discussed how annoying some of their song titles are as well. They're just <laughs> like, it's, it's specific, specifically in this album, they go off a fucking cliff, man. The, the yeah. song titles get ridiculous from this point. Um, the other one that I think is quite interesting is Athel Bros. Um, it's quite recognisable in their catalogue. I mean, they didn't mm-hmm. have any huge songs in this, as you say, but um, it, it's it, it's a familiar one. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like the fact, I mean, maybe it's a little bit Enya in itself, but I like the fact that it has those 
quite Celtic vocal patterns in it. Yeah. Because this is this is the thing about Cocteau Twins. It's sometimes quite hard to put your finger on why they do have a faintly Scottish vibe. You know, it's it's not like Stuart Adamson with the bagpipe guitar effects. It's it's there's something faintly Scottish about it, and in that song in particular, I think it really is at, at its strongest. She she does remind me of Kate Bush a lot in this record in places, and the Celtic feel in this pronounced in a couple of songs. But I was also saying that that, that Celtic feel, or I was also going to say rather that, that Celtic feel is quite prominent in a, in a few places throughout the career, and and in places in Heaven or Las Vegas, probably probably more so. A couple of songs on that too, as we'll get. to Yeah, second half of Heaven or Las Vegas, definitely. Mm. So um, Heaven or Las Vegas followed this album in 1990, uh, and then. There was a three-year break. Um, the three-year break uh, included the very kind of consequential uh, divorce uh, between Liz Fraser and Robin Guthrie. And it, it's pretty fucking brave to continue a band when you've just gotten divorced. And you can ask Sonic Youth about that, but especially, I mean, this is a band with even fewer members. Um, and I think the the responsibility fell on Simon Raymond to really hold this together um, he he's credited with having been a key to, to, to everything the band did from this point onwards to, to making it happen um, especially given the Robin Guthrie's sort of questionable personality at times I guess um, and also substance abuse up, yeah, yeah substance abuse which will be a big part of the discussion of having our Las Vegas in detail I think uh, this Four Calendar Cafe the 93 album takes a bit of stick and places fairly low in lists It gets a little bit MOR, in fairness. A lot of the really extreme guitar effects and things uh, get dialed back on this record. Uh, the first track in it, Know Who You Are at Every Age, I think it's actually one of their better songs, maybe one of their best songs. A beautiful doubling of vocals in that, and the bridge is really quite anthemic. Uh, cry, cry, cry Evangeline, uh, the second track is quite languid, quite dreamy. There's there's a weird thing she does there a vocal in that where she drops down low like, and she, as a producer she doesn't stick the landing on the on some of them I think it's like maybe the, the first and second and then she sticks the third I can't I can't remember exactly which ones but when you listen to it the, she hasn't stuck the vocal take and yet it's been allowed to go forward to the point of making it onto the album and then the later takes she has nailed so she's proven that she can nail the take but then they've still allowed these slightly gammy takes and it's, it's all the worst given that they're the, certainly the first one is clearly not quite right I don't understand that I mean this is not a small band it's not a small production team and you're, you're just listening to it thinking oh god that's not it's not a great take and then it's followed by a perfect take you're like so why the fuck was that allowed Th- those little moments I don't I don't get I don't know if that's a product of just someone getting fed up and saying I'm not doing it again in the studio I've had enough or I don't know what that is it's, it's a really odd you, you don't usually hear 
for, for my money mistakes like that making it all the way through the process this is actually their first proper major label record as well Cap- the other records were only Capital in the US but still on 4AD they're on Fontana now so this is like the yeah, so this is the place where you wouldn't be doing those kind of things yeah exactly all the more reason yeah this album saw Liz Fraser going back to actual lyrics Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right, and that's that's key to it because I think a lot of the lyrics in this were directly related to the divorce, right? Which again has got to be mm-hmm. it's got to be an interesting uh, element when you're in the studio together. You know, Simon Ramon looking over at Robin Guthrie for his reaction as he's listening to the words. It's, it's got to be kind of awkward. I um, can't say I'm a fan of this record. Um, I enjoy Mor occasionally, and you know fuck it if the French edit of Josephine by Chris Rea isn't one of the best songs of all time <laughs> but <laughs> Chris Rea is allowed to do Chris Rea but uh, there's something about Cocteau Twins peering down the noise and making intelligible lyrics and it just it, yeah doesn't work for me you, you know what it reminds me a bit of it reminds me of the Cranberries at this point yeah they went from being this kind of experimental dream pop band to being a sort of slightly unusual melancholy indie guitar act um, like Bluebeard's a good example. Which I think's actually got a really nice vocal line in it, but the delivery is so pedestrian, and I think there are a number of like strong songs in this but the delivery is just really quite bland and it's not what you expect of the band you know it's not what they've become known for mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit it seems like it's getting a bit middle aged even though they're still fairly young uh, interesting album in 96 Milk and Kisses I don't really know what the band sees as being its place in the world at this point. I mean, this this record starts like kind of nineteen ninety two era Britpop. It's mm-hmm. very very odd. Um, Liz Fraser, f- for what it's worth, does her damnedest to set this album apart from indie rock of the time. But it, instrumentally, it sounds incredibly dated. Her vocals, the eccentricities of her vocals are probably the main thing that stop it just falling into the midst of the pack of, you know, 90s, early 90s British guitar acts. Certainly by acts like Lush, who also were hugely influenced by Cocteau Twins, and now Cocteau Twins are almost regressing back and copying what Lush did in their later career. It's, it's, it's a strange decision. The, the guitars are really not nearly as innovative as they were um, they've got like a wee bit of delay or reverb or a little bit of chorus but it's, it's nothing particularly interesting this also has a song in it called Seekers Who Are Lovers and the the vocals are I don't know if maybe it's the case when you're producing your own stuff or you've just gotten to a, point, a position of influence where people don't tell you no but the vocals in that are fucking dreadful Liz Fraser dialed up to 11 doing these weird warbly ridiculously OTT backing vocals that are just 
I mean, just baffling. Uh, again, a, a total lack of self-awareness. Um, yeah, and that was, I mean, the band disbanded in 97. Um, another, I mean, the only other thing I'll say, and I mentioned it in the first episode, that I really think is worthy of note is lullabies to violin, uh, which is like kind of they're they're both the names of EPs, and it's it's EPs spanning eighty two to ninety six. And I think that that collection is really quite underrated. There's a lot of like. There's a lot of tracks, first and foremost, but there's some really great stuff in it, and I think especially some of the the more angular post-punk stuff from the earlier period is really, really interesting. Uh, It's a a worthwhile listen, even if you're just assembling a playlist. It's them at they're most eccentric at points as well. Um, I guess that means we get to heaven or Las Vegas, Dave. Uh, first and foremost, like, can I just ask? Uh, th- this is a widely praised album and quite a successful album, right? Are yeah. We, we, I I assumed that we were calling this unsung in the same sense uh, as, say, for example, Downward Spiral might be unsung, and in, in that it's already a very widely acclaimed album, but even then, it's maybe its sheer uh, influence and level of excellence yeah is still yeah under, influence under excellence and i mean it didn't sell anything really compared to i don't think it ever hit platinum anywhere so you know it's um considering how influential and how many bands have taken parts of cocteau twins uh i think heaven and or las vegas is their most complete record it's the one even now you know having gone back through it's the one that i still listen to start to end yeah and it you know it it was never a mainstream record it's just like a a touchstone for artists but not for consumers i say like a band's band basically yeah i mean that they definitely are a band's band it's a really really interesting period of the band's history in 1990 there's a lot happening in music generally uh, in 1990 there's a lot of like changes underway and grunge was about to explode and uh, and just prior to grunge, even just here in Scotland, bands like Teenage Fan Club and stuff, you had, you had like a, a sense of resurgence, Pixies and stuff as well. You had like a real bubbling under of of indie bands that couldn't be further away from the kind of cock rock or the crap sort of early nineties, late eighties, early nineties dance sort of stuff. There was just there was a new thing happening. It was time for like a kind of breath of fresh air. So yeah, it was an interesting time for them to make something of a breakthrough album. If they'd released a weak album. At this point, they might have ended up being regarded as more of a sort of early eighties band, whereas I see them as being more of a late eighties band in people's minds because Treasure and this came out at this point. It sort of recast the focus of, of where they're, you know, what point in the calendar they're 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 pinned to. Um, in terms of the circumstances, this was this was um, the first album done in a custom built studio for the band. Mm-hmm. This was also Robin Guthrie going into his like Brian Wilson phase of like obsession and drugs and you know personal mental decline to some extent but also creative brilliance in some ways um the band hadn't actually played live in about four years at the time of this record but yet guthrie especially describes them as being in good shape because they'd spent so much time concentrating on the writing and the, the studio and so even though 
to, to people on the outside they might say a band that hasn't done any shows in four years is maybe in, in disarray he, he, he felt it was the opposite um, I think they feel quite warmly about this album I mean Guthrie says it's the first time they'd written a hummable album of songs and there's definitely some merit to that there's 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 lines on this that you can hum to someone mm-hmm. in order to identify them which is not necessarily that easy with some of the earlier stuff where it's more about production and, and vibe Um, it was also quite an optimistic record because, I mean, yeah, Liz and Robin, they had their baby, Lucy Bell, mm-hmm. uh, just before they uh, started recording. Um, I think Simon Raymond got married as well. And although they were dealing with, you know, cocaine habits and just being general miserable fuckers, like this album seemed to come at the right time. It maybe focused them and then everything else focused them on this as well so yeah it seems they were they were quite they were turned quite inwards uh in the sense i mean robin guthrie i think in one of his interviews uh described having not read a newspaper in about three years at the point where they recorded this record it's like you know you're getting married you're having children the other members getting married they, they, they were very much like looking at their own lives and their own creativity there wasn't a lot of wider context there wasn't a lot of distraction really as well uh, so it does feel quite uh, pure in that sense I guess um, it's a nice uh, like when he describes when they were listening back to it when they finished it is they turned off all the lights in the studio and played it and just the feeling of excitement mm-hmm. on what they just accomplished um, I get I guess I can kind of relate to that, not to this extent. I'd like I've done that thing in a studio where you play something back and you're like, you get that hairs, you're like, oh, we've done something good. And if you've just recorded this album in particular, you, you know, you can really see that. So it's it's some it's an album that has a lot of meaning to them, unlike Treasure, which is uh, probably the exact opposite. Um, it's interesting lyrically. I mean, again, Liz is like culling words from various places, but also she sang a lot of it to Lucy Bell so a lot of the narrative in this it's got more of a narrative in it than than some of the, the records immediately prior to it because she's singing to her baby for, for for the for the bulk of it and so a lot of things that she's pulled together if you if you put, if you if you're listening to it and you catch a little bits and bobs uh think about them in the context of that's that's what she was where she was coming from artistically she was singing to to her child um and I think that that kind of it's quite an interesting lens by which to, to view it. Also, like I mean, there's very little, a uh, few lyrics in some parts of it, which kind of makes it sort of the obituary of dream pop. Because obituary, famously for the first record at least, had no words written down. They were literally just growling and grunting and just making noises that fitted. So this, she does a wee bit of that at times as well, which leads to that thing where people just impose their own lyrics upon it. Uh, you know, just this is what I wanted to say, which is kind of cool, I guess. Um, Dave, uh, do a quick tour through the tracks. Yeah, well, I'm just going like there's a couple of things I just want to chat about mm, sure, before. Sure. It's like I get Simon Ramond was a lot more involved in this record, in part because I guess Robin Guthrie, you know, was taking a bit of time off um, to do drugs, but also then <laughs> be a father. <laughs> um, it was interesting, you know seeing what he brought to it he, like a bit of darkness there as well because I think he wrote Frau Frau Foxes in Midsummer Fires uh, 
god I hate even saying that uh, song title yeah. but that was written the day after his father died um, so like that gave these two thematic pillars of you know birth and death to the album um, and then Ramon talked about when he'd you know be recording with Liz Fraser and Liz would go in to the control room or Liz would like record some fucking unbelievable you know take uh, and go and say oh yeah how was that to Ramond and he'd have to be like yeah that was fine Liz even though he's you know wiping away a tear at how incredible it was because she just mm-hmm. she hated being overpraised and effusive stuff like that so she was just like yeah. if if he said that was amazing then she'd be like nah it was shit let's do it you know so. on that note as well um I, I remember an, a, an anecdote where they were saying that Liz would do a couple of bits and bobs in, in the booth and they'd assume that she couldn't replicate it for the next take yeah. and she would just replicate it for the next take. They thought, oh, that was kind of a fluke, but she got it and uh, they kind of found themselves consistently underestimating how much of what she was doing was actually deliberate. Yeah. Like it wasn't just fluking her way to a good sound, which is, you know, and another amazing. another part of it, I guess, like another foundation of this record is... Guthrie's um, drum programming which is like kind of the, the foundation of what a lot of the songs start with although they are so far away removed from hip hop and I guess we'll go through the tracks but like a lot of those beats are very hip hop influenced and mm-hmm. even were influential in you know to some hip hop producers as well. Yeah there was a definitely a hip hop vibe to some of the, the songs on this drum wise anyway for sure So um yeah, I mean, it kicks off with Cherry Coloured Funk, which is one of their, their biggest tracks, and it kind of... It's iconic. Yeah, it mm-hmm. ticks all the, all the Cocteau Twins boxes. So you were talking about that annoying name Fru Fru Foxes and Midsummer Fires the, the, the name Cherry Coloured Funk I think comes from a lyric in Fru Fru mm-hmm. Foxes um, yeah I mean it's got a really bouncy percussion in it doesn't it um, and this yeah, is a hip hop production the and the guitar yeah. is also carefully timed to sort of complement the, the tempo of the song yeah the, the, the drums are bouncy because I think they are a bit hip hoppy to me which I find quite interesting on this yeah and there's a good there's a good vocal melody in it it's just a shame that it's ruined by not having any lyrics <laughs> yeah uh, I mean I guess that's that's the uh, the elephant in the room for you Mark is that you just hate her lack of lyrics don't you there's nothing for me to grab onto I think it I, I can say it now or I can say it later on if you want but I think uh, a lot of people love, say it later on yeah let's say, say it later on, on. say it later on right. keep your powder dry Mark um, I think the, the harmonies work well in it the second yeah. chorus in particular the second vocal comes in and the second chorus really lifts when the octave the octave yeah that's that's really that's really yeah, nice yeah, mm-hmm. it's well arranged Pitch the Baby second track I, I feel it's very of its time yeah I was going to say uh, it actually feels uh, very 80s it feels a bit dated uh, I think She, like Liz does a good job uh, with the vocals or the lyrics or uh, however you want to put it but she makes them quite percussive in this song which isn't really typical of dream pop you know it's usually quite floaty and sort of ethereal but in this it's really quite uh, it contributes to the pacing of the song quite a bit um, and yeah I mean there are some Enya vibes but maybe Enya on speed <laughs> Enya's bound to have done a bit of speed in her time right clearly I mean you can't she probably party she, she would party Enya would party. 
Enya, I, I feel like she would party, but it would be a very tidy party. You think Enya would party and she'd always have oat cakes? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, <laughs> fucking love oat cakes, man. I fucking love oat cakes as well, man. That's do you, why. Do you, you like the little circular ones, Enya. or do you like the little circular ones, or do you like the sort of uh, quarter wheel ones? I don't discriminate based on on appearance as long as they're rough. Then I don't want any or smooth fucking shitty oat cakes like biscuits. I want a Aye. rough oat cake. Yeah, the rougher the better. The, the, definitely. You, you're picking picking the wee bits at your teeth for half a week. It's like a second meal <laughs> once you start picking your teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you're like playing the, the whole game with an oat cake. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Slow release carbs. Um Ice Blink Luck, third track. I mean, this is 1990, and the guitar in this sounds like 85, 86. Yeah, it reminds I, me of the Smiths. I feel like the guitar. Yeah, I, I like, the, I quite like the guitar, and it. it's a bit of mar. To yeah, it. but I think I, I totally get those comparisons. But what I mean is, the guitar doesn't sound forward-looking. It sounds backwards-looking at this point. I feel like there's a point in the 80s where they went from leading the pack, from setting the tone, to starting to sort of follow the pack. And that's reflected when they start going into their cranberries kind of territory and all that kind of stuff. There's an inflection point somewhere in there, maybe around about sort of 87, where everybody catches up or they get short of ideas and they start to dial back the effects on the guitar. They start to dial back a lot of the sort of experimentation. And this track kind of captures that for me. It just feels a bit safer. I mean, the guitar is still wet. It's still got effects but it's just a little bit more restrained and yeah I, 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 you're right it does sound like those bands but that's kind of because those bands have picked up on the early stuff caught up a wee bit I, I don't know I, I, I think even for 1990 it sounds a little bit uh, behind I agree uh, 50-50 Clown It's like all about the percussion, I think, really. Yeah, the percussion's big in it, the, the kind of brooding bass pulse thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of quite pessimistic, and whilst it's dreamy, it's, l- it's got a l- slightly sinister sort of undertone to it. I quite like it. Yeah, yeah I like, like it, and I think it works well because it's coming up, it's like a prelude to a big track. It feels like mm-hmm. a bit like Depeche Mode to me. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Prince, got, Prince uh, actually sampled this. On the song "Love Thy Will Be Done." No, oh, Prince Alarm. So Pr- there you go. Prince Alarm. He wanted to sign them. He wa- he wanted to sign them at Paisley Park as well. Yeah, that's hotels. right. Mm. And yet uh, you still don't like them. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what the fuck, man? He wouldn't be saying that if Prince was still alive. He'd be sucking up their bum just in case. Uh, uh, title track: Heaven or Las Vegas. Tracks, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely fucking massive. I mean, Liz, you can see she is up there with Bush and Bjork, and ter- and like the melody in this is just fucking amazing. We mean the grunge band Bush, obviously. At this Clearly, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just as good <laughs> as Gavin Rosdale. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think this has got a lot of like Simple Minds, The Cure, kind of big. Well, I say big eighties pop, like big very late eighties pop to it. Um, 
huge chorus obviously I mean it's yeah it's fine it's, it's obviously again very iconic especially for fans of the band I think the guitar is really good on this as well though like there's just some really nice little parts coming in and out it sounds like the edge uh, <laughs> the guitar sounds like the edge <laughs> which is not a bad thing because the edge was pretty innovative in the 80s right and it kind of sits alongside that for me um, I like the chorus I like the way the, the chorus kind of swells mm-hmm. I think that's kind of cool and the, middle eight, the guitar lead in the middle eight is pretty cool as well And I guess, so I guess we always forget this now, and it's actually something that we haven't talked about that much before. But this would have been the end of side A. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. We we talk about this as if it's just you know halfway through the record, but you know when they were making this, this would be end of side A. Then there's side B, and it really does kind of alter your perception a little bit of an album and having two different sides and the track listing is definitely different when it comes to just listening the whole way through on you know Spotify yeah, yeah. or whatever I, I, I wonder if this was the end of side A I mean I know it's the track 5 but I'm yeah like, I'm, I think like it was yeah s- such a big song would mean, seem almost like a better starter but I guess um, I mean I wear your ring in that in that sense of your right I wear your ring would be the start of side B which seems a little bit understated Although, it, it, I, I will say, it starts like Roxette. <laughs> it starts like Roxette. It, it goes, it, the vocals change it a lot and make it quite arty and, again, quite pessimistic. But it's got a cheesiness uh, to, to, to the opening mm-hmm. gambit, a little I think. Bit. What's the politic? Uh, Feels kind of Celtic, this one. Definitely got a huge Scottish vibe. I definitely... I kind of like the duel between the vocals and the guitars. Uh, Yeah, it works. Um, you know, um, it's really, really similar to the song 2000 Miles by The Pretenders, you know, the Christmas tune. The snow is falling down, it's colder day by day, I miss you. Really? It, 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 honestly, know. it is. Go, go and listen to it. Um, I mean, it's big and kind of blossomy and jangly and stuff, but it's it's very similar to that in places. Yeah, I just th- I think overall, like, I don't know, it's quite quite a complete sounding track. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wolf in the Breast, I think, is the least important song on the record, the eighth one. Um, I really hate the kind of jazzy lilt on the vocals, and 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 the, again, the chord choices just really doesn't work for me at all. Can be a 
I know. I, I like Wolf in the Breast. It kind of comes in and out. It like makes its entrance and then it quietly leaves again, and it fits really well in the album um, without standing out too much. I guess. I think Road River and Rail is the one that for me could probably just be left off the record. It's definitely mm. got a bit more Celtic stuff to it. You know, that one feels more akin to their earlier stuff, uh, Road River and Rail. It's, it sort of has the feel of, I would say Treasure, but even before Treasure, it's, it's, there's something older about it, which I, I don't necessarily mind, because as I say, I feel like some of their newer stuff had gotten a little bit safe, and so even though it's looking a little bit backwards, it's maybe a bit truer to what I would say they sound like. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it's, a, it's an interesting little uh, bit of trivia about that is that uh, Robin Guthrie and Simon Ramond, they tell Liz that it was a fishing song, Rod River and Reel. Um, and they would sit with lyric sheets when she was singing. Like, she had lyric sheets at this point, And they would be following her vocal and still not be able to tell what the words were because of the way she was pronouncing the syllables. Um, but yeah, then we finish with this subdued piano-based track with a terrible name called Fru Fru Foxes and Midsummer Fires, which as you said, Ramond wrote shortly after his dad passed away. Um, which I think obviously leans heavily on the melancholy uh, and, and, and utilises the kind of wispy vocal interplay uh, a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fucking great outro because it it builds, by the end of it, there's six different vocal lines all happening. I think it's quite a subtle closer. It's not just like a big bombastic thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it works really well for me. I think it, it kind of sums up the album. It's not a big classic track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I like it. I it mean, just fades out very well. It's clearly poignant. It had a lot of personal significance. So I guess in that sense, it's possibly why the, the band feel so close to the record as well. Certainly Simon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, like, I guess the record has to mean something to them too. I like the guitar sounds in this. The feedback at the start is really nice. Yeah. Um, the so- Our vocals are usually high in the mix in this song compared to the rest of the album. And I, I like that it's moody, you know, and uh, what I don't like is the actual sound of the keys in the piano. I mean, I think that's because they've aged quite badly. You know, they they, they, they kind of definitely feel of the time. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. But I like, I like the ending as well, the big ending and fade out, that's cool. So here's the reveal that's not the reveal, because this is where Mark has been keeping his emotions very in check for the duration of this podcast, even though he let them out the last time we recorded it. <laughs> Needs to just put his fucking cards on the table and tell us, that's a lot of metaphors in one there. Uh, Mark, <laughs> what do you think of not only this album, but Cocteau Twins generally? Tell us your feelings, and speak honestly, Mark, you're among friends. Okay, um, it's... I feel like I've walked in an AA meeting. <laughs> I feel well. You are clutching a beer. Yeah. You're the only one of us drinking right now in the middle of the day. So that's, that's, a, that's a bottle of water, mate. That's a bottle of water. <laughs> I need drive later on. 
Um, I guess I'll be drunk from last night, though. That is fair. Uh, I think this band, for me, are utterly devoid of any emotional content whatsoever. Um, (laughs) You just talked about a song where the guy's dad died, you fucking savage. Like, so... They try to elicit some kind of feeling with the, the massive walls of guitars and the vocals. And for me, the, the vocals are aping humanity as opposed to actually giving a human side to it. I know a lot of people love this band because they feel very emotional because you can, as Chris said, you can impart your own narrative on the songs because of whatever's been said. But for me, they're just a band for chin-stroking hipsters and people that think this nonsense is esoteric when really it's just dreamy without any substance at all. So, so um, <laughs> we should probably ask our resident chin-stroking hipster, Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I think as is pretty obvious, I'm somewhere between the the, the two of you guys. But what, what are your reasons? Well, getting? I don't know. I guess I guess we come to a point where we discuss the implications of us doing this podcast and studying music as in depth as we end up doing, you know, each week. Because for me, this was an album I kind of picked when I was 19 and it was always just I was always just happy to put on in the car or when it was snowing and it was like really nice background music or driving music and I love how lush it sounded like a couple of really big fucking tracks and then to critically evaluate it and to critically evaluate it over like six months like this is fucking taken (laughs) it's been really interesting and i'm not like has it has it taken the the sparkle out of it for me i don't know i guess i i don't think it's perfect in any way i think it's been really interesting looking at the band because i think it they are quite an interesting act they've done some really interesting things they've had a lot of influence on other bands that I really like am I going to fight to the death to put this album in our unsung discography no I don't think I am but am I going to still put it on in the background on a nice sunny snowy day yeah I am as well (laughs) I still sunny snowy days are the best yeah like yesterday (laughs) it was fucking amazing like I like this record and I I don't care if there's no deep meaning to it because like some, uh, sometimes you just want to put on an album because it sounds nice I think that's yeah, fine you like to yeah. you like to compare albums to cheeseburgers Dave, yeah, right? yeah exactly cheeseburger that this is just a good fucking solid cheeseburger um, <laughs> a bit of lettuce bit of mayonnaise bit of tomato a good patty you know there's I feel I feel like this is some sort of artisan sort of beetroot and cauliflower burger in a vegan brioche uh, I think there's some like a little bit I get what Mark's saying there's a slight emptiness to it in some ways but I mean I think certainly amongst some of the albums that we've covered I don't think you could say this was in the top half of meaningless chundering fucking nonsense I mean we've we've talked about some absolute shite we have and we have. <laughs> yeah I, I don't think um Cocteau Twins are necessarily guilty of that. Uh, I think I, I have, the I have, crux of my argument is that th- that that pulls me out. You know, the lack of... Uh, the, v- the vocal thing just pulls me out the, the band entirely. It, it always has done, you know. And that's on me. That's totally on me. <laughs> that's that's I, very much me. I am me, so. definitely not a huge fan of the vocal style. I think sometimes it's nice and other times it's just... I get the market that likes it. I get... I, I, know, so I know that's patronising. I get... And I know many people that like it, and I get it, but I, I just don't share their perspective on it. I find that sometimes it can be quite 
whatever you know um I, I don't hate the band at all uh but nor do i love them as i said earlier there's a few kind of standout points on them uh that leave me feeling a little bit unsure like whenever a band is so widely revered i'm always a little bit suspicious of them and some bands overcome that for me certainly some people overcome it like tom waits and that's not without having plenty of criticisms of some of tom waits stuff uh, but you know that that is invariably the case I approach some of their stuff especially if I'm not already invested in it with a bit of suspicion Um, I've been highly critical of Radiohead for example for that Moonshape Pool album that they brought out which is fucking garbage and I I think that's appropriate I think it's appropriate to like not just recite the party line on these these groups I think this is a good album I think I would have been more swayed with the unsung status of it by uh, Bluebell Knoll Mm -hmm. probably Given that we already spoke about the fact that this and Treasure tend to vie for top spot, Bluebell Knoll doesn't really feature in there, but it's a very interesting album. If we were going to do Cocktoo Twins again, then I'd uh, (laughs) probably go Bluebell Knoll, but there's no fucking way that's happening. No, there really is not. (laughs) But I only really discovered that album through us doing this record. And Heaven or Las Vegas is still my favourite record by them, so... Well, we still have to record this podcast a third time anyway, so <laughs> maybe... No! <laughs> uh, no, but, like, listen, I, I think Bluebell Noel, I think, is unsung even amongst their canon. Uh, I think, other than that, though, a bit unlike the Nine Inch Nails analogy, where I think Downward Spiral is so far ahead of the rest of their work that even it's still relatively unsung, for, for given how good it is. I think Cocteau Twins is much more evenly spread. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is like head and shoulders better than anything else they've done, and so therefore I'm less inclined to see it as being unsung. Um, yep. I think the, the dream pop influence is massive and you can't deny how huge they are in that entire genre in fact some of the, some of the bands doing dream pop are just wholesale ripping them off still to this date um, I think less so the influence in terms of shoegaze I do take on board that Robin Guthrie's guitar work is probably very influential in, in that field but I don't think much of the rest of the music is so I, I have a reservation about that sort of criteria uh, and I, I, I do still say that sometimes the fact that people won't acknowledge that Cocteau Twins stray into the territory of Enya for hipsters kind of rubs me up the wrong way there is definitely an Emperor's New Clothes mass consensus thing to it that uh, just tends to kind of put me off a wee bit so it's fine it's fine I'm not inclined to put it in but I'm going to abdicate responsibility and sit in the fence Mark's clearly saying no <laughs> and you're clearly saying aye so I think that's uh, that's uh, is what it is people are going to have to make up our minds for us yeah that's fine mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, alright next is time for the first time in a long time this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? not good Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Nexus, yes. Yeah. Uh, just, to, to, just to draw people's memories, the, the Nexus this week is Stalin. That was my choice, <laughs> actually, surprisingly, because, you know, that's, that's my special subject. <laughs> um, so, Dave? Dave, you're first. So, um, Song to the Siren, as mentioned 
uh, the song by This Mortal Coil that Liz Fraser and uh, Robin Guthrie were involved on was chosen by Don French. It's She said it, that song made her fall in love all over again and it was part of her Desert Island Discs. Mm-hmm. Don French was part of alternative comedy thing in the 80s. The comic strip on Channel 4, which is like a big influential alternative comedy TV show and sketch show sort of thing. Collective, yeah. Yeah. Another member of that collective was Alexis Sale. Could have just done him straight to Communist Party because he was a member. But Mm. he has written for the Independent Newspaper, which... Does that actually exist as a newspaper anymore? Or is it just online? No, just online, yeah. 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 Does anything exist anymore? I thought everything was just online. Nothing oh, really. Yeah, that's true. Um, back in 2009, when it did actually exist, and it was a newspaper, a n- newspaper, there was a feature in it called the University of the Bleeding Obvious. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was like mad press releases by university studies and things like that. So groundbreaking report that the more fit you are the longer you'll live and things like that Mm. the more burgers you eat the fatter you get yeah exactly um and there is basically a sort of russian meme that is taken from that and it's called the british scientists meme basically because british scientists are always coming out with mad stupid obvious shit that um British scientists have debunked the myth that mice mice love cheese. British scientists have invented non-stick bubblegum. British scientists have designed the ideal sandwich. Things like that. And, uh, yeah, so basically that became uh, a meme back in about 2003, 2004, I think. And it grew so much that um, there was a... In 2015, uh, a Russian science TV channel uh, released a series of programmes called British Scientists... And uh, that TV channel was Science 2.0, owned by VGTIK, which was the Russian cable channel, started in 1990. In 1998, they produced a film called Krustulyov, My Car, which is a five-star rated, delirious and visual amazing, visually amazing Russian gem. Is that like, dude, where's my car? Exactly. And it's a sort of hallucinogenic, um, odd satire with documentary realism and everything and it all starts in the very aftermath of the death of Stalin also a movie <laughs> a great film but, uh, great yeah film. it's a uh, I actually downloaded it after um, doing this but I haven't watched it yet sorry my brain was all off, all gone there so, uh, wait, wait, so see that that British scientist meme yeah. the Russians basically obviously used it as that sort of soft soft propaganda of, of you know making that meme go viral Aye. to ridicule Brit- British science yeah 100% anti-western sentiment the fucking pettiness oh, of, of, like, of their black ops is just it knows no bounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got a division that's just dedicated to throwing shade at the west I guess. <laughs> um, you go next because uh, mine's is really long me? yeah okie dokie well I will say I passed up uh Link, Dave talking about passing up Linkin Park. I passed up a link that involved Pat Nevin and Brian McClear at a Cocteau <laughs> Twins concert. Yeah, I'm um, sad about that. Yeah, yeah. Pat Nevin used to write for the NME. He was a big Cocteau Twins fan. In fact, in one of the documentaries, he's interviewed about about them. Uh, and he took Brian McClear, Celtic and Manchester United legend, uh, and his missus to a Cocteau Twins show once. And he said he turned around during the show and Brian's face was absolutely tripping him. <laughs> um, and Pat's like, oh, Brian, are you 
you're not having a good time. And, and Brian, Brian McClare's answer was along the lines of, Pat, I'm in heaven. if you know the kind of emotional deadpan nature of of Brian McClare generally that's beautiful Uh, but what I did go down the the route of is uh, Robin Guthrie uh, claims that Cocteau Twins were like the innovators for uh, putting drum machines through processing and effects and and specifically amps back in 80 and 81 we spoke about the sort of uh, hip hop chops and the, the, the innovation and that, that that side of it um, I mean I would maybe say that's perhaps an ambitious claim when you consider some of the things that were happening in music at that time but you know Guthrie maintains they were the innovators um, the first ever drum machine was actually called the, the Rhythmicon uh, also known as the Polyrhythmophone and it was actually invented in 1931 which is mental uh, and it was invented by a guy called Leon Theremin Oh, the theremin. You might mm-hmm. have a rough idea what he's he's known for. Curious, a uh, little bit of trivia as well. Leon Theremin um, was in the States for a while where he married uh, a woman called Lavinia Woman. Uh, where he married <laughs> a woman called Lavinia Williams, um, who, uh, who was a black dancer, uh, part of the American Negro Ballet Company. And obviously, you know, 1920s, that caused a big story. He had a really interesting personal life. Um, they stayed married for a long time as well. Um, now, Theremin's travels are sort of disputed and, yeah, merit further examination, but uh, he was in Russia and then he moved to the USA in 1927, but then back to Russia in 1938. Now, Lavinia Williams, his, his, his aforementioned wife, says that he was abducted initially, but then later sort of revelations suggested that it was actually more to do with tax reasons, unpaid tax in the USA. We don't really know. Um, there, are, there are different theories about why Theremin ended up back in Russia but when he got back to Russia he was basically arrested and sent to uh, the Kolmaya gold mines which are you know the, the skin flats of Russia way up in the deserted areas in the north um, and there were actually loads of rumours circulated that he'd been executed uh, but he was actually put to work in what was called I think a Sharashka uh, or Sharashika I'm not crap with my Russian obviously but uh in that facility, uh, it was basically a secret scientific facility, he was uh, in charge of developing eavesdropping devices for the, the Soviet military and the government. He was thus awarded the Stalin Prize uh, in 1947 for his espionage work and his service to the state. Um, interesting, by the way, another link that I was going to go down there, and fuck it, I'll just do it for the sake of it. In 1920, the first ever versions of the theremin were dis- uh, were. Uh, demonstrated at an electronics conference which is mad to think of an electronics conference in 1920 but an electronics conference in Moscow and the theremin there was three of them I think made at that point and they caused such a stir that uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin asked to meet theremin uh, in person and to get a demonstration in person Uh, so basically theremin and Lenin ended up jamming on a theremin to a tune called Skylark um, along with uh, accompanied by a pianist and supposedly as well to, to start off it was a bit like the film Ghost when you had Theremin reaching round Lenin and sort of guiding his arms to show him how to play the Theremin but supposedly according to interviews with, uh, with Theremin afterwards he said that uh, like Vladimir Lenin was actually kind of a natural and pretty quickly he took over and was playing really really well uh, he, he had a bit of a musical instinct to him um, but yeah that could have made for a, a very different version of the Beach Boys <laughs> Nice, that's good. I like that. So I guess I'll I'll round this off then. Mine's is quite long, so I apologise. Um, 
the Cocteau Twins are from Grangemouth. We've just discussed that Grangemouth is probably... Mingan. Almost definitely most well known for not just being Mingan, but also being the site of the Grangemouth refinery, which is why it's Mingan. <laughs> um, it's actually been in operation since 1924 and is actually linked directly to Grangemouth Port, which is one of the largest ports in the UK and the biggest... Also Mingan. Yeah, biggest container terminal in Scotland. At the start of World War I, the Royal Navy Admiralty requisitioned the Grangemouth port for the war effort as it was already bringing in oil for the refinery and all merchant ships were banned from using it during World War I. This was made possible because of the 1914 Defence of the Realm Act. This gave a huge amount of power to uh, all the different kind of army branches so that they could requisition buildings or land needed for the war effort. Uh, it also kind of brought in a weird authoritarian style of censorship stating that nobody could, and I quote, by word of mouth or in writing spread reports that to cause disaffection or alarm among His Majesty's forces or the civilian population. This basically means people were allowed to be arrested for anti-war activities. And one of the people uh, that was arrested was Bertrand Russell, which is quite interesting, and various trade unionists, including the Scottish trade unionist William Gallagher. William Gallagher was one of the leading figures of the shop steward movement during World War One in Glasgow. This was a movement that brought together all the different shop stewards for the trade unions across the UK, but it actually originated in the Clyde Workers Committee, which was a campaign that was set up to protest the, new mission, the Munitions Act of 1915, which was an act that was passed so that the, the creation of any munitions for the armed forces meant that all these facilities could maximise their output by buying up public companies that supplied the armed forces and by in doing so they created really harsh conditions on wages and hours and employment uh, and actually forbade engineers from leaving the companies they worked for so the shop stewards movement was kind of set up in response to that um, it was actually his opposition to the defence of the Realm Act that got Gallagher jailed for six months he was also a key figure of the Red Clyde side which was the name given the groundswell of left-wing support that was happening in Scotland during World War One. I. I won't go into that too much. I think if it's quite an interesting thing, you should go and read about the 1919 Battle of George Square, which yeah, the, when the Clyde Ran Red book by Maggie Craig is really good. Yes, it's fascinating because in the midst of the campaign for the 40-hour work week, they staged a massive rally, and obviously because the, Bolshe- the Bolshevik uprising had just happened in Russia, uh, the, U- the UK government were shitting themselves, so they sent tanks mm-hmm. uh, to to George Square, but they also barricaded the Medihill barracks because they thought that if they let them out to run the tanks and try to quell the rebellion, that they might actually join the Red Clyde side. Mm-hmm. It's in- you know it's interesting for again for listeners outside of Scotland. Uh, this is part of why the Scottish political legacy is still s- sort of quite considerably left to centre. Certainly, in the context of the UK, like this history of sort of trade unions, especially in Glasgow and Dundee and places like that, it's it's had a, a lasting effect on the sort of political sentiments of the country overall. Uh, it is a really interesting subject. Anyway, uh, so after this, well, Gallagher kind of was already in the Communist Party, but soon after he became a leading figure in the Communist Party and he was a Communist MP for West Fife from 1935 to 1950 and then after Stalin I mean he does the, he, he does need punched in the dick for that there's no fucking excuse <laughs> for that <laughs> um, after he, uh, soon after Stalin died in 1953 he actually wrote an article that praised Stalin but there's actually a more direct link um, the 1951 Communist Party Manifesto, which is called The British Road to Socialism, advocated for a peaceful transition away from communism to socialism. The Communist Party wanted to be more socialist, basically, but they were only allowed to publish it after Joseph Stalin himself had personally approved it, which he did. 
Mm. Yeah, there's some really, really interesting writing by George Orwell from that whole era, like right the way through, where, you know, initially all the Defence of the Realm stuff, he was critical of that, but then also hugely critical of this fucking stupid, naive drift of the sort of labour movement towards embracing communism when the evidence, that it was clear, like there was abundant evidence of the atrocities were happening in Russia, the reports were coming back regularly about it and people were just choosing to disbelieve them or thinking it was all worth it in, in the end and it was pretty horrific. You ended up with people like him who in some ways were very commendable figures aligning themselves with one of the most horrendous uh, ideologies that has ever existed so it's yeah it's it's one of those very morally ambiguous periods where you've got figures that drift both in and out of your sympathy um hi there you go that's, that's a fucking highbrow nexus from you there Mark. yeah well i knew one of you guys wasn't going to do it this week so <laughs> <laughs> Not quite Nazis, but close enough. <laughs> uh, all right, well, I think we finally... I mean, there's still plenty of time to, for this to go wrong, but I yep. think that's us done the Cocktail Twins. Yes. Um, <laughs> what are we doing next week? Well, before we do that, do you want to pick an excess, Chris, for next week? I have selected... Melanie Sykes has chosen by Lewis Holleran. Melanie okay. Sykes. Cool. That's gonna be that's gonna be fun. So British T V presenter and Totty. So uh it was a, it was announced on New Year's Eve that MF Doom had sadly passed away on the thirty first of October. And we were gonna do or I was gonna pick a hip hop album this week anyway. Um, but we've decided to kind of change tact a little bit so we're going to do we know that MF Doom actually died or did he just get someone to die for him well, well if he's been mentioned in this podcast he'll die if he's not dead already <laughs> that's, that's true, true. <laughs> that's true uh, so we're going to do Mad Villain the first Mad the only Mad Villain album uh, Mad Villainy which was a collaboration between MF Doom and Madlib and it's going to be it's going to be interesting it's a great really great album mm-hmm. Chris you've obviously never heard it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be one of those weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, looking forward to it. Like, really fucking interesting character and artist. So it'll be yeah. it'll be good to yeah spend some time with. He's got a lot of stuff, so yeah, you'll be spending a lot of time with him. <laughs> Great. All right, everybody. Well, uh, thanks for you know that. St- stay safe you know, <laughs> very long um, six months of cocktail twins but uh, yeah yeah I mean you you'll never hear this because this is definitely going to get corrupted or lost or burnt <laughs> or stolen um, but you know we'll be back for the third attempt at recording this pretty soon alright thanks guys cheers bye <laughs>